Well, hello and welcome to a very, very special episode of Say Something Interesting, a follow-up podcast from East Lake Tri-Cities Church here in Eastern Washington. My name is Brent, and uh, with me today is a very, very special guest. His name is Dr. Ron Herms, and uh, he was a professor of mine at Northwest University when I did my graduate work there, uh, now currently serves as... Uh, uh, Dean, uh, what, t- give me the title there, Dean. I keep screwing it up, and I don't want to do that for you. Yeah. Hey, Brent. Hey, everyone. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, I serve as Dean of our School of Humanities, Religion, and Social Science at Fresno Pacific University in Fresno. Brainchild, brain trust, uh, head of the brain trust down at FPU. <laughs> and uh, you've been there for how long now? Been over five years, sixth academic year. That's great. Yeah. Have you ever done a podcast before? I have once, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Not, not probably live. a better setup than this one. No, I did it. I, I did it. Was it like through Skype or something or a phone call or something? Oh, like that? yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, the quality comes through on this one for this in is terms quality, of right? Yeah, here. exactly. We're up in this a high tech. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Super high tech. <laughs> uh, him and his wife flew in last night. Funny story about that. We had him in for Friday night, East Lake U. Uh, today, we did something at Tommy's Tap House. He's speaking for me tomorrow on both services. We are recording on a Saturday, which is kind of unique. Usually, this is uh, recorded on like a Monday or Tuesday, and we talk about what happened on Sunday. But you guys are taking off immediately after service tomorrow, right. so we had to kind of uh, call an audible on it and do this a little early, which is awesome. Uh, so, But last night flies in. Originally, we bought his ticket for about 4.30 in the afternoon, giving us about a two-hour margin of window to check in the hotel and get to the theater and do all the things. At some point along the way, Alaska screwed us and moved it till uh, 6.30, <laughs> right. which would have been fine because then we moved the thing to 7, and then it was even late on, uh, on departure from Seattle over yeah. here. Uh, so it was a, a bit of a fiasco. Not his fault. Uh, my fault probably for picking Alaska. Anyways, <laughs> showed up at, uh, I don't know what time you got there, 7.30, 7.25? Yeah, just before 7.30. Yeah. That was all good. I yeah. was just leading karaoke, and <laughs> we were playing bingo, and uh, everybody stayed entertained and uh, then started in, and uh, I, I know I had to cut some of the presentation short, so I'm sure we'll get into some of the uh, stuff that was you know, planned to be presented on Friday, and now sure. we're, we're doing this podcast. And then also anticipating um, a little bit about what you're going to talk about tomorrow and right. see if I can offer in some thoughts or things on that, because people will most likely listen to this typically on about a Tuesday, Wednesday, as they continue to process okay. so that Sunday just doesn't sit alone, that there's some sort of activity beyond that to kind of keep it right. going throughout the week. Okay. Um, so uh, specialty of focus uh, for him is revelation, is sort of uh, eschatology, which is a fancy word. What's the Give us a fancy definition of eschatology. Yeah, you know what? Uh, eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos. It really just means last or final things. And so uh, whether you think of last or final as being ultimate or as being like related to time, sort of the final thing that will happen, eschatology tends to be interested in how, from a Christian perspective, how God's kingdom fully comes to be realized um, in this world and in, in the cosmos. So there are other eschatologies out there. Um, it's not distinct or unique to Christianity. In fact, um, one good example might be conversations around uh, climate change and crisis in our world environmentally. And for many people, that conversation sounds apocalyptic. It even sounds like an eschatology of sorts. But um, as we come at it from a sort of reading of Christian scripture point of view, eschatology is the, the question for Christians as to how God's kingdom comes fully in its final form. Yeah. Uh, and the thing that struck me most is 
he was the first, or not the first, he was the most normal person I had met who was obsessed with revelation <laughs> and eschatology. Because typically when people lead with that and or they post it on their social media as a, uh, you know, revelation expert, um, it's followed with Bible code or, um, you know, I don't know. Charts, graphs. Charts, graphs, numbers. It's not a high bar. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Is that why you picked it? Like, this is a low bar of entry. I don't even I can have to do be this. that good. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like, you know, all those obscure sports where you're like, exactly. I should just take up, you know, Fencing. badminton. I don't even have to be that good. Who plays badminton anymore? That's right. It's I, like the guy who went to Harvard because he was captain of his fencing team. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. I got an athletic scholarship. Exactly. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, so, yeah. So, you, so describe kind of interest in that. You mentioned just kind of wanting to go in that yeah. direction. Yeah. But over this at Tommy's, you mentioned that 25, 30, you're going, there's no real good answers out there. Yeah. Um, maybe I, I, I can't just, I, cause I get this for a lot of people. Um, I'm really comfortable reading Matthew through John. Right. Uh, Paul sometimes can be a little bit academic over my head and there's some things that he'll say that I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how, what I, what I said on that, but, um, you know, especially the second half of Paul in the, in, in the sort of pragmatic, how do you live out what right. we just talked about in the first part of it, that can get very easy to be like, those are principles I wish, I, by which I want to live by or speak of the Christian community. Mm -hmm. And then people get to Revelation, they're like, I think I'm good. I've done 65 books. <laughs> Why do I need a 66 one? Yeah. I'm so afraid of it, and I don't understand it, so I just, I kind of, um, I know it's in there. I, I'm, I'm, I want to honor the Christian tradition enough to say it doesn't, to not say it doesn't belong here, right? But I don't know how to reconcile it with life, mm -hmm. and so is is does that speak to something about? Yeah, you know what you just articulated. Um, actually, anybody who thinks that way is in good company. That's exactly what Martin Luther thought about the Book of Revelation. In fact, if he hadn't believed that the author was a disciple of Jesus, he would have recommended that it be taken out of the Christian Scripture. Um, just because he thought it was that fantastical, and he saw that people didn't use it very well. That's why he also um, kicked out James, right? Yeah, he wanted to kick out James, <laughs> but again, he was kind of stymied because he thought, ah, it's Jesus' brother, I really what do can't I do mess here? with that family right. member, right? right? But he hated it. In fact, he called it, what, an epistle of straw or yeah. something like that, yeah. and he, he uh, nicknamed Galatians after his wife because he loved Galatians so much, but... Um, but you were asking, you know, what what kind of get got me interested in it, and um, I, you know, I, I was a pastor in in the '90s, and uh, people were asking questions about, you know, end times and uh, Y2K. I mean, the year 2000 was coming. That's not even going to mean anything to anyone who's <laughs> not sort of 25 or 30 years old now. Yeah. But um, I, I was convinced that there were good answers. I just wasn't aware of them. And so, um, yeah, it just Why? intrigued me. Why do you think that you were convinced that there was good answers? Because I would say, for the most part, looking at the landscape of what's out there in terms of resources and revelation, yeah. I would say that most people go, if there are good resources, they are hidden very well. Because yeah. and 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 you you come out. Is it just because you grew up in a religious household where you're like, I think that this makes sense. Uh, it has to make sense, or else why would it be here? Is it faith in the Christian tradition, yeah. uh, the canonicity of how it kind of became a part of that? That you're like, there must be something here. It probably helped that I was a pastor at the time, and I figured um, if it's in Scripture, someone smarter I'm, I'm than paid me to believe it's in yeah, there. <laughs> no, someone smarter than me, long before me, yeah, okay. thought it was worth being in there, and uh, 
So if it's not obvious to me, that doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason. It just means I don't know what it is yet. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of led me on this, this search to try to be a better reader of the text. And what I realized, uh, what you just described about how most people process the rest of the New Testament, is we do tend to read pretty flatly. Um, and by that I mean we don't tend to appreciate the changes and the shifts between genres, literary genres, in Christian Scripture. Um, we do this all the time in everything else we read, right? Like you wouldn't read a love letter or a Valentine's card the same way you read instructions to an Apple device or something. I mean, you, yeah. we just make those shifts, um, but it's harder to do when you're not familiar with where those shifts come in Scripture. Um, you mentioned genres of music in last night. Exactly you right. Jazz differently. It's than like listening to music. Yeah. Um, you know, we listen to country music differently than we do in terms of appreciating the nuances of hip hop or classical or, you know, you name it. When the beats don't match up in jazz, you just say, "Well, that's jazz." That's jazz, right? It's supposed to be like it's that. Supposed to be, like whether that. I understand it or not. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. you're right. We give. Uh, we actually give time and space to that dissonance, which is an interesting analogy to apocalyptic literature, which also has dissonant symbols, often even dissonant messages. Uh, one example might be, how can the book of Revelation, on the one hand, sometimes sound so narrow and specific, as though only a few people will ever really get this gospel and get saved, and then within minutes or verses, have these grand visions of universal multitudes, innumerable numbers of people yeah. experiencing salvation and praising God and living these flourishing lives they're intended to live. At one point, literally putting a number on it. Exactly. 144,000. Yeah. That's yeah. who gets in, right? Yeah. And entire religions are built upon being part of the 144. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But then again, that would be a really great example of not, uh, to use the musical analogy, of not hearing the genre very well, sure. uh, because in apocalyptic literature, numbers have meaning beyond their numerical sequence. Yes. So 144,000, I would argue, uh, means a, a lot more than simply what the face value of that number in is. In the same way that Jesus is saying, you forgive your brother seven times seven, he exactly. doesn't literally mean count up to 49 at this point. No, right? exactly right. It's a, it's a sign of completion and... Yeah. and, and Unending, like yeah, and I mean, and since we've used it as an example, um, one way people often think about the hundred and forty-four thousand is to suggest, first of all, that there are twelve tribes of Israel. There were twelve apostles of the Lamb. Both of those are categories already in other places in Revelation. Twelve times twelve is one hundred and forty-four, and then the number thousand in the ancient world was used the way we often use. Well, the word translated is myriad, and it's the way we use the, the concept of infinity. Um, so 12 times 12 times infinity, and in the ancient world, you'd get 144,000. There you go. Yeah. We're getting into the weeds, and I love it. <laughs> no, this is great. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and then I'm sure as a... Uh, "Quote unquote revelation expert, you get like the oddest. Que I mean, because I get questions too as a pastor, but sure. a lot of times it's just like you know, hey, like real life stuff. Mm -hmm. People come to you going, hey, so like Mark of the Beast stuff, like yeah. what's uh, what's that's what's going on with this? Is this the uh, banking <laughs> system currently going on in the euro system or whatever? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, and you, it's got to be an interesting side to be on for you. Going, how deep do I go with you? And and you know, is it uh?" 
uh, you know, it's hard to go into the weeds on all of that as opposed to like what you're saying here is you have to read it differently. And I'm, and, you know, and you would encourage people if this is interesting to you and you go this, don't just read it at surface value thinking my 2019 mindset right. can fully completely understand what I'm reading here yeah. and not and not go beyond this and, and understand not just um that this this thing this this text is alive. It was it was relevant. It words meant yeah. things at that time that were different. The format of it. You mentioned other um, apocalyptic genre type of literature. Some of them extant literature that didn't make quite make the uh, approved canon of scripture as we have it. But sure. due to recon- uh, canonic material mm-hmm. of either intertestamental or just like hey the church had this like people read this kind of stuff right. but they just thought you know this one's important. Um, uh, Revelation is important to include in Scripture, but not necessarily other versions of it. Yeah. And the reason last night you said, and I love this piece too. This was in my uh, my notes. The reason that Revelation made made it as an apocalyptic is because of what it had to say about Jesus as right. one true Messiah and this. That's what's different about um, for them uh, the reestablishment of uh, of Israel and and uh, Mount Zion and all the, the nations flowing to it and all that Old Testament kind of prophetic sort of stuff. But for, but but what you said is Revelation had this super incredible Jesus angle to it that was right. quite different. Yeah. So if you read it alongside other early Jewish apocalypses, um, the things that are said, like the symbols that are used, the the phrases and idioms, all very similar. If you look at what is claimed about demons and fallen angels and um, you know those kinds of things, uh, angelic beings. Uh, very similar in, in many, many ways to early Jewish apocalypses, but what happens in Revelation is that the author is now using apocalypse as a medium, almost like you would use a style of music as a medium, or you would use a certain kind of filmmaking as a medium, and now he's using this apocalyptic medium to tell the story of Jesus. And the easiest way to illustrate how he does that, and this would be something for everyone at home to kind of follow up on if you want. I would recommend reading Matthew chapter 2 and then reading Revelation chapter 12. And what you find is that Matthew chapter 2 is the story that Matthew tells of the birth of Jesus and then the killing of the innocents in the village of Bethlehem, which is like like to every measure, if if the population numbers from the ancient world tell us that maybe 70 or 80 young baby boys were killed by Herod's forces. And there was blood running in the streets. It's an apocalyptic, it's like this Netflix, HBO type scene, right? It's awful. But then if you were to take that apocalyptic scene in Matthew chapter 2 and tell the story of how evil is pursuing the Messiah, the Messiah, the Son of God, Revelation 12 tells this story of a woman who's pregnant, about to give birth to a baby boy who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and suddenly you've got a fantastical or cosmological retelling of the same story. So I've sometimes had conversations with people about the birth narratives of Jesus in the New Testament, and they'll say, yeah, the two, right? The one in Matthew and the one in Luke. And I'll say, no, the three, the one in Matthew, the one in Luke, and the one in Revelation 12. So Revelation's not trying to tell some new story. It's simply taking the account of Jesus, taking 
his life, not so much now from a historical angle, which the Gospels have done well for us, but now retelling it on a grand cosmological scale and saying, this is how important Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is. He rules the entire universe, and now you're using science fiction or, you know, um, almost like Avengers-type storylines. That's how apocalyptic functions. And I think it's easy for people to fall into understanding uh, of the forward-looking nature of Revelation as a, uh, you know, prophecy or uh, last days or, Mm -hmm. you know, about something that goes beyond. But it was also, there's an element of it being a critique of current-day empire, some of the letters to churches in in terms of their status and their... uh, willingness to go along with empire or just accept it as kind of, this is kind of how we do life. Yeah. Um, Can you speak to that anti-empire critique of it? You mentioned uh, apocalyptic being a a giant reveal Mm -hmm. last night. Yeah. Uh, That's kind of within the word of, and you likened it to metaphorically to the Wizard of Oz, the reveal of the old man, you know, moving the levers behind it and being like, power has this, this presence that tries to uh, fake its own intensity, mm-hmm. and if you pull back the curtain, you realize that which seems insurmountable and all-powerful is really not, yeah. and there is something going on behind the scenes, and at this time, Rome is obviously the world power. It is the world... Uh, into Everything points to Rome. Right. This is, you know, Jerusalem's on the outskirts of it. They've always kind of been... They're, uh, they're aware of it. They pay taxes to it. There's enough soldiers in the area to be able to be like, we know who's in power or, mm-hmm. or assumes or wants us to think that they're in power. Right. And Revelation kind of offers a sort of critique to kind of that too, right? It is. It does. Uh, it does pull back the curtain. In fact, um, and since we're doing this on Saturday afternoon, anticipating tomorrow, um, our text for tomorrow, uh, for Sunday, is taken mostly from Revelation 6 with what is popularly known as the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And, um, and again, if you're reading Revelation in a purely predictive model, as though all of these things still have to take place, uh, that's a pretty scary future. Um, it's also a... It's also just a, a complete random reading of Revelation. But if you take it as an unveiling of what has happened, what continues to happen, and what will happen until God's kingdom is fully established, it suddenly pulls a curtain back and makes sense of the world in a way that we uh, might not otherwise be able to do. And it puts in much more stark terms the kinds of forces and powers that our everyday lives we typically don't run into demons. <laughs> we typically don't run into people with swords and machetes and those kinds of things. But these are images that help us to put um, put real ideas and real experiences on the everyday lives that we live in terms of how we're rubbing up against expressions of evil. Um, I should just say, um, Eugene Peterson has written some really great stuff on the book of Revelation. And one of the things he says about reading prophecy is, if we read it as though it's a prediction of the future, we're really procrastinating. We're putting God's Word to us today off for another day, and saying, it doesn't matter for us right now. We'll, f- we'll figure this apocalypse thing out when it actually happens. Right. And the message of Revelation <laughs> is, it's happening to us right now. Yeah. We're part of the story right now, and... Uh, and we got to figure that out. Yeah, it's almost as if it's reading about all of the uh, effects of diabetes, and you know, and, and going, well, 
if when I get that, I'll I'll, right. uh, I'll have some real problems on my hand, and then I'll need this book. And you're like, yeah, but look at like we're kind of giving you some warning that you could probably figure some of that and make some of those changes now to be able to. Yeah, <laughs> and the some... analogy is to say, hey, your sugar intake right now yeah. is at dangerously high levels. It's leading right? towards this. Right? That's the apocalypse. Yeah, is you're doing it to yourself right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and how much? Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I've always kind of read or assumed any sort of anti-empire. Uh, tract or work writing from mm-hmm. John serving his exile on the island of, of Patmos, right? Yep. Um, would have a hard time making its way off the isle, would have a hard time being disseminated because for sure Roman forces would see a blatant, easy to read expose on anti power and anti empire and kind of shut it down. Mm. But having written it in sort of a Jewish apocalypse where his audience would know how to read this, but, but perhaps Roman. You know, leadership wouldn't understand the aggressive nature of what he's saying. Oh, this is just another Jewish guy spouting off his anti, you know, his yeah. future rhetoric. That's fine. Just pass it through. They they, mm. they do their own thing. Kind of under the guise, under the uh, under the. Is that is that still part of it? Is that it, it, it's a good point. I I, I want to be careful there because on the one hand, I do think that there's a sense in which the average Roman reader. Um, I don't know that there was such a thing as a Roman uh, censorship board, yeah, you know, right. that was reading this yeah. stuff. Um, Propaganda machine. But, <laughs> but if, if there had been, or if it fell into those hands, I don't know that they would have caught the implications of the anti-imperial stance of the text. And yet, I don't think it's because John is trying to hide his message. And I'll tell you why, is because of all of the things that John critiques among believers, among followers of Jesus, the number one thing on the list is to be a coward. In other words, when you get to the end, and there's the list of, here's the people who do not enter the New Jerusalem, coward is the first one on the list. And you're like, really? That's the most important thing to you? Because, you know, we tend to think in terms of drugs, sex, and rock and roll, and somehow, you know, those are the people on the list. And it's not. It's coward, which... If you think about the emphasis on witness in the book of Revelation, of being a witness to the Lamb and to the gospel of Jesus, to be a coward is to be the antithesis of a witness. So it would be disingenuous for the author (laughs) to say, hey, nobody better be a coward. By the way, I'm going to write this this in code. code. (laughs) Yeah. You're so, gonna need this coding ring to yeah. understand. <laughs> but but here's the reason why I I'm not sure it would have really landed with Roman readers who weren't also part of the community of faith. And that is that it's written with the themes of Israel's story. And that's just not a story Romans could give two rips about. Yeah. Right. right? So when you're using Exodus language, plague language, you know, the kinds of things, the themes, uh, even the The contest in Exodus where Moses approaches Pharaoh on behalf of Yahweh, I mean, that's just not a storyline. I mean, they're telling stories about Apollos and Augustus and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, They're not talking about Moses and Pharaoh in ancient Rome, right? So I just think it would have got, it was like 747 over their heads in that sense. But anyone who knows that story and knows that ancient Israel was also... Uh, taken into exile by Babylon, and has a history both of opposing and being overrun by these empires, right? That's what the book of Daniel is all about, like the four beastly kingdoms, right? right? 
Um, and Revelation picks that up and uses Daniel's kingdoms as well and says, guess what? The latest iteration of a beastly kingdom is the Roman Empire. And I think where the rubber should meet the road for us is to stop and ask the question and say, okay, if beastly kingdoms keep reinventing themselves, and if this, this demonically inspired uh, abuse of power and oppression is still present in our world, where are the beastly kingdoms today? I think that's the pastoral question. That's the personal question that Revelation is asking us. And at what point am I going along with it right. or looking the other direction or get some sort of a personal benefit from it? I mean, that was the critique of the Sadducees versus the Pharisees. The Sadducees right, are these the religious leaders who kind of sort of have benefited from right. monetarily, influentially, mm-hmm. from just being like, well, let's let Rome kind of do their thing. Why, why strike up a—why rebel? Why you know, have an issue with it? Right. And, uh, and, and fall into that, and you're like, we, there's, a, there's a danger in that for sure, mm-hmm. and, and awareness that needs to take place, and ignorance yeah. is not the best option there. Uh, okay, so you, you mentioned the word witness. Uh, you brought it up last night. Mm-hmm. It was super interesting piece about revelation— like. The, the, the word showing up multiple times in that, and really that's the purpose of, that's what we're being called to, is the church is to be witness to the incoming nature, uh, or the incoming... Yeah, uh, the rule of God. The rule of God, yeah, yeah. That, that was the word you used. Um, and you, you said, you likened it to the story of uh, Moses and Pharaoh, and who were the... When the when the plagues happened, who were the main characters of that story? Yeah, and the answer for most people is well, Moses and Pharaoh. Moses approaches Pharaoh, says, "Let my people go." And mm-hmm. He's like, "Nah." And then there's gonna and then Moses does something and prays and brings right. these plagues on. Yeah. And your con your comment was, "No, no, no. The main players in this are the God Yahweh mm-hmm. and the gods of Egypt that were represented exactly. by Pharaoh himself. Yep. Those are the the things at work. Yep. Moses is simply a witness to. I, I'm I'm telling you that this God is more powerful than whatever you think you have over right. there. Uh, can you kind of expand on that? I, I'm not saying yeah. it right, so... No, no, I, I, you've got it. Um, I, I think that the point was simply to say that many people see this as a contest between two men um, who are trying to do one over on each other, right? Is Pharaoh going to win or is Moses going to win? Yeah. And it's really important to recognize, first of all, from an Egyptian perspective... Pharaoh is the representation. He's the the morning sun, um, and so he's a deity. He's representative of the gods of Egypt, as you say. And this is not a contest between two men. It's a contest between two deities. It's Yahweh versus Pharaoh. And you're right. Moses stands in that representative function, and the fact that the author of Revelation makes so much of that story uses the Exodus narrative, uses the plagues of Egypt. Um, to talk, to describe the evil and the oppression that he sees in his first century context. He uses those uh, accounts and that narrative as a way of saying, in the same way, when you become witnesses of the Lamb, when you stand with Jesus and represent the in-breaking rule of God, just remember, it's not you against Caesar, right? It's Jesus as Lord and Savior contesting the claims of the emperor who also was called 
Lord and Savior. Yeah. That was the propaganda of the imperial cult right. in the ancient world. The, and God, so, the good news of Augustus's birth for you know peace on yep, earth and the exactly prince of right. peace, you yeah. know, all that kind of stuff. And so and so to stand in the role of Moses yeah. is not to be some great heroic leader. It's just simply to stand in the role of what it means to be a witness for the rule of God. Yeah, which I love because you said, uh, I mean, the role of the church is not to by its own power, affect change on this world right. and bring heaven to earth, but to be a witness to God's inbreaking kingdom of heaven on this earth, he's already going to do it. It's yep. a matter of, do we get to participate in something like that? Yeah, and I'd, I'd go even a step further and say he's already doing Yeah, it. he's already done. And, yeah, yeah and, exactly. And the work, already but not yet kind of thing. Yeah, right? the work of the yeah. Christian community is to listen well and humbly and say, where is it happening and where can we join? And how do I get behind it? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, it's good stuff. How about the churches in Revelation? Uh, are, you, are you speaking of that tomorrow? Uh, I can't remember. Is that is there? I mean, that's a big piece of. Yeah. There's a, a section in there that I think is um, kind of a breath of fresh air for a modern reader because it, it feels practical. It's got sure. the whole you know lukewarm, I'll spit you out kind of thing. But obviously, he's he's uh, specifically addressing actual churches in that area going through various conflicts and and how is it a, is it a call to witness in that way, like a, in a specific community? Mm-hmm. Explain, if yeah, you can. And- you know, and, and I'm not dealing with it so much, but it really does take me back to something I wanted to say earlier um, in response to how do we read this text well, because I think it's pretty easy for someone to listen to our conversation and go, well, sure, if I had years of my life to dedicate to, you know, postgraduate study and all these kinds of things, you know, if I had all the time in the world to read books, yeah, maybe I could, you know, figure out Revelation a little bit more as well. But I actually think I that there's a... And soccer yeah, games exactly. Life, right. Um, I, I think that there's a simple answer. It's not easy in the sense that it's not necessarily easy to do, but there's a simple answer to understanding Revelation well, and that is to take seriously the fact that this apocalypse, which I've sometimes described as like the ultimate 3D IMAX movie... Uh, experience of the ancient world. That's how apocalyptic functioned. It's to understand that there were real people living real lives in real cities with all of the everyday struggles that we face as well. And what John is trying to do is to take their, what they might think are their small, mundane, everyday worker world lives and flash them against the backdrop of a cosmic drama of a contest between the pretense of earthly kingdoms and beastly power against the gracious inbreaking rule of God who seeks the flourishing of every human. And the Roman story was essentially the story of the 1%. And I'm using that phrase simply sure. because people in America would know what it means. But the Roman story was that the peace of Rome could bring mobility and security and all kinds of benefit to people who played the game and who got lucky and who figured it out. And the contrast to God's kingdom of peace, which is there for everyone, especially those who are oppressed and marginalized, couldn't be more striking. Um, And then you get to chapter 18 in Revelation where uh, the ultimate critique that John can level against the empire is that they traded in human lives and souls. And I think in a specific way, he might be 
addressing what we would call slavery in the ancient world, but in a much more general way, it's just a disregard for human life, for the disposability of most human bodies, and God's kingdom of peace calls us to a very different posture. Yeah. But there are powerful entities who have learned to play the game who don't want to lose the grip they have currently. And so (laughs) when you witness for this peaceable kingdom, when you stand with the marginalized, you can expect the powers not to be happy with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So good. Uh, And maybe I'm inferring too much, but you you kept saying the author of Revelation. Yeah. And uh, question of authorship. You caught that. Yeah. It's always it's always the very it's been assumed. I mean, general Christian tradition assumption is John. I I I learned that early on in uh, even just undergraduate work Mm -hmm. of hey, we're not actually sure that Matthew was a Matthew or that John was a John or you know or. Paul may have written some of these, but probably not all of these, or that kind right, of thing. Right. Sure. Uh, your take on that briefly, and and why does it, uh, and does it matter? And and you know, who, yeah. if it's not John, that's I think that that's fine, guys. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And, but like he also writes as if it is John. So why mm. that? Why say that? Right. Um, but is there? Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, I think that there's, um, for me, there's a relatively simple way to think about it. I think the author's name really is John. I just don't think it's the John that most people think it is. Got it. Um, so when people hear John, they think John, the beloved disciple, uh, you know, John, the one who's credited with uh, what we call the fourth gospel uh, or the letters uh, that bear his name. And what becomes obvious, uh, because if you're thinking of John, the beloved disciple, who eventually becomes known as part of the group who are the apostles, um, There are several references uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5 is a good example, but then especially in chapter 21, where there's a reference to the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And it seems like anyone who could legitimately make that kind of statement uh, would not be making it including themselves in that category. Third-party reference. Exactly right. So, So this is someone who's looking back just a little bit on the first generation of Jesus' followers and leaders, and um, whether it's simply coincidence that his name is also John, or whether he's taken on the name of his teacher, who could have been the Apostle John, I think it's obvious that he has a regard for the Apostles that isn't consistent with the deferential uh, figure called the Beloved Disciple that we read about in the fourth Gospel. So, and again, to the last point of your question, I don't think that it really makes any difference now for us as readers, but I also want to be uh, uh, honest historically and say probably the reason that Revelation is in the New Testament is because there was a time when people thought it was written by the Apostle John, and I just have to be honest about that and say, even if I don't think that's the case now, sure. they did, yeah. and and that's why we have it. So and that was a big I'm deal. grateful for the idea, even if it's not right. I mean, for a canon of Scripture, it had to be written by an Apostle. That yeah. was kind of the, we got to draw a line somewhere, this is where we're going to draw it, it's yeah. by one of them. 
I mean, there's some exceptions uh, in terms of Hebrews and all that kind of stuff. But anyways, sure. yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's interesting. But even at that time, there would have been a strong tradition that associated Hebrews with Paul, right. even though no one thinks that now. Yeah. How yeah. about um, date of authorship for that? Where does that yeah. fall in line? Here's some dates that we know for sure, right? Yeah. Jesus' crucifixion about 33 AD, destruction of Jerusalem about seven, or not, not, not about, 70? in 70 mm-hmm. AD. Yep. Uh, that's Roman history. Yep. Um uh, where does this is this post uh, post temple that kind of stuff post uh, um, well, I can't think of the word destruction of the of Jerusalem and, yeah and as they are looking around going gosh our whole entire freaking world is yeah. in shambles yep. and now we have this as kind of a that kind of thing or is it pre I mean I, I a, think it is okay. there there's two basic theories one is much earlier than the other I think um, the theory that says it was probably written in the mid 90s. So about 20 to 25 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, near the end of the author's life, um, and certainly near the end of the emperor Domitian's reign, which was brutal by many accounts, um, and seems to square well with um, what was going on uh, in the empire at the time and what's described in the book. So I think that that's the more likely date, is the mid-90s. But there are also some people who suggest that this is something from the mid to late 60s, right during that great time of tension and revolt that culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem. And the reason for that is that there are such obvious references in the book of Revelation to the emperor Nero, who was emperor from 54 to 68. So because of those references, some will say they'd prefer the earlier date. Um, I stick with the later date, and I think that the obvious references to Nero, which really are there, are there in part because Nero actually gained legendary, and I mean this in a bad way, but he gained legendary status for how corrupt, cruel, capricious, um, uh, self-centered he was. And so he almost functions as a caricature or a template. An easy target, really. Yeah, exactly right. So Nero becomes the bad guy of history. It's almost the way people might throw the name Hitler around now and say, oh, he's a, like a little Hitler or yeah. something like that. So, so Hitler's legacy lives on long after he's gone. And I think the same thing was true of Nero. So that combined with some of the other references that seem later makes, for me, the most sense in the mid-90s. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Awesome, man. Hey, this has been really, really great. We probably need to wrap it's this fun. up. Cause it's fun. It, I could do this I, for a while. I blinked and it's 37 minutes <laughs> in. All right. Um, you're going to be here tomorrow. But I will. Yeah, uh, you're listening to this after that, so I can't tell you to come tomorrow because it's not going to make any <laughs> sense. Uh, but uh, his talk is going to be available on our East Lake Talks page uh, if you want to go there and find uh, the video of it or iTunes podcast. Just search East Lake Tri Cities. Uh, would love to have the, uh, you, you follow up with that. Um, also, uh, give us. So we usually close this thing off with a little something interesting that we. Uh, mm-hmm you know, found, have found, we've read, we watched or whatever, uh, instead of putting you on the spot and having you come up with something creative and, and not having done this before, you're from Fresno, California. Yeah. Tell us a little something interesting about Fresno, California. Tell us what, what's something that, uh, that we need to know about the mm. great metropolis that yeah. is Fresno. California. Oh man. Uh, I, I had Why something we teed up. I, I just finished watching season three of Stranger Things. Oh, so okay, we do that. We'll do that. Yeah, yeah. Good. Did you like it? But uh, I love it. Really? Uh, okay. But, well, for two reasons. The soundtrack is the soundtrack of my teenage years. Absolutely. Right? The 80s music. Sure. Uh, but I also love just sort of 
this idea that there are two worlds intersecting and colliding at uh, the same yeah, time. Right. And I think as someone who's interested upside in... upside down, right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. As someone who's interested in apocalyptic and just this notion of there are forces at play that sometimes create scenarios and situations that are unbelievable and we don't understand, um, I think it functions in a parabolic way in that sense. So I had a lot of... I probably had more fun than my wife did watching it. But See, it that's why... So I watched season one by myself oh yeah because my wife watched like the first couple with me and she's like i can't yeah. do it it's right. just it's too out there the, <laughs> the aliens the whatever's i'm, I'm yeah. out and yeah. so then uh i have a hard time watching shows without her because that's how we but then man read out. revelation chapter eight or nine or yeah. 16 and i tell you what you got three-headed monsters and frogs and so all kinds of this crazy is good stuff. this is a pastoral moment listen if you listen to this <laughs> and you like stranger things you might like Revelation. You it might be because you're drawn it. to biblical theology. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Eugene Peterson earlier. I, I came did. to you after a class one time uh, and said, "Hey, if I was to dive into one one book specifically, yep. mm-hmm. and you know, knowing you've you've read my writing in terms of my papers, you know my low level of intellect. What would Not you recommend? at all. <laughs> <laughs> what would you recommend? Yeah. And you mentioned Reverse Thunder by Eugene Peterson. I did. Yeah. I, it's still what I would recommend as the easiest entry point, the best devotional writing on Revelation. And it's 30 years old. Yeah. It hasn't... I mean, there might be one or two dated references um, just because of the changing political landscape over time, but it is still as good as it was 30 years ago. And if anybody listening wanted to dive more into the anti-imperial rhetoric and the apocalypse versus empire kinds of conversations. There's another book uh, that I'd recommend called Apocalypse and Allegiance by, excuse me, by Nelson Craybill, and uh, that's also really good. Okay, I'm going to write that down. because. But the it. best thing about Fresno is the food. Oh, yeah? It's the best food on the planet. Man. Really? It really is. What's... The tacos are amazing. It's Well, it's the Central Valley of California, which... We sometimes refer to as the salad bowl of America. Gotcha. Um, but I know I'm saying that kind of in an ag setting here in eastern yeah, Washington. Yeah. But still, with, the food uh, is amazing. Lots of uh, you know first generation Hispanic and Mexicans mm-hmm. who who do. Um, we have some of the best taco trucks in America, man. I mean, you're, you're speaking. <laughs> hey, our we gotta have a taco here. throwdown. I know we should. I should have <laughs> taken you out there instead. We went to Gray's, but uh, yeah, that no, that's great. Uh, Fresno, west of Salinas, is that right? We are. Okay. Uh, we're east. So. Salinas is almost on the coast. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, sorry, so, that's where I'm at, east. I'm yeah, we're in the Central map, Valley. Yeah. Um, and uh, an hour and a half from Yosemite, an hour from the Sierra Nevada mountains. It's a, it's a really cool place. Okay, yeah. cool. That's awesome, man. Good. Thanks, man. This hey, is great. absolutely. Thanks for coming and uh, being with us. Uh, we really appreciate you. Yeah, love you. you. Love uh, Eastlake. Yeah. Uh, your wife's here tomorrow as well, you so um, excited to have you guys experience um, East Lake as a community, I, you know, you've seen it from afar and, mm-hmm. and now you get to, uh, be here live and in person. So we appreciate you flying out and making this awesome. thing happen. Yeah. Thank uh, you. thanks again for tuning in and listening to this thing. We'll be back next week. Uh, I, I, uh, I cannot promise uh, Mallory, I, I'm, I'm putting it out there. I'm hoping that, uh, that she's back soon. She had a baby and I'm not trying to pressure her in any sort of way. You take as much time as you need Mallory, but, uh, I don't want to do this thing alone. So, <laughs> we'll figure something out but uh, have a great week guys and uh, we'll see you next time thanks